Well, good morning and great worship. And as our uh, Northridge campus joins us and Cactus and Chapel, as well as certainly you've been with us already, all of you online, we are continuing, as was mentioned earlier, a series we began about a month ago called uh, The Battle Within. And this was my idea, so if you don't like it, you can blame me, but it was a, a, just a brainchild to try to take some of the things that all of us uh, at times, if not some of us more consistently, battle within and match it up against what the Bible says or see what the Bible says about these things that, quite frankly, are, are universal struggles. So we began the series by looking at disappointment and then fear. And then Kevin last week walked us through shame. And wasn't that an amazing look that he took us through? That was, yeah, you're supposed to clap at that. So good. There you go. Yep. <laughs> And you know, I, I got to pay Kevin an amazing compliment because I uh, I listen to Kevin and Rustin when they preach. I'm usually traveling like I was last week, and I listen to them to evaluate. It's one of the goals that the elders have for me is to help you know nurture the next generation of preachers. So I listen to them to evaluate. But halfway through Kevin's sermon. I, I found myself stopping evaluating and I was listening to him speak to me about my own shame. And, and literally, like as I found myself doing that, I said, stop it, stop it, get back to evaluating. And, uh, and, and yet, in all seriousness, it was an amazing experience for me to allow my brother to speak to me from God's word, that amazing passage out of 2 Corinthians on, on worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. Uh, today, we're gonna be picking up the series and taking a look at depression, which, uh, as you will see, is, is more common than some of you who might not experience it think. And then you got to laugh at this a little bit because I did plan it. I did plan it this way. Next week on Father's Day, we're going to talk about anger. Isn't that perfect? And so, you know, I thought it was a gift for me to you men because uh, I, I wish Tom Schrader was alive because he'd, have, he'd, he'd be, he'd be just have a ball with that one. And he would say that Jamie is in his element talking about that. And so uh, we're going to talk about element or talking about, talking about anger next week. And I think you guys are going to be uh, men, especially deeply ministered to ladies as well. Then we're going to cap off the series in two weeks with a, a look that I think is gonna encourage and surprise some of you. We're gonna take a look at the concept of victory and what the Bible says about that. You know, the Bible says that we as believers are overcomers and that we have victory in Christ, but I'm not sure the average Christian has really thought about what that means. I mean, does it mean you'll never sin again? Does it mean you'll never struggle, struggle again? I, I'm not sure it means that. I, in fact, I know what it means. I'm not going to spoiler alert, but I, I think you're going to be very encouraged coming that week that, that there's freedom in your soul to still battle, but that there is certainly victory to be found. And, and that's going to be a great cap to this series at the end of this month. So uh, let's bow right now and pray. We've got just about 35 minutes here to take an in-depth look at, at what God's word says about depression. Father, thank you for your spirit. Thank you that your spirit inhabits our praises when we worship you and that, Lord, your spirit now will inhabit uh, our time in your word. Lord, for years, theologians have used the phrase illumination to refer to what your Holy Spirit does when we open up your book and read your words, that the Holy Spirit would illumine our minds, that literally the light bulb might go on in our heads as to what you are saying to us. May that happen to us today, Father, as we take a look at what your word says about those of us who struggle at times, if not even more regularly, with a depressed spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So the first thing that we need to uh, understand about depression, and I've kind of hinted to this already, is that it's a lot more common among extremely normal people than some might think. Uh, the whole history of the world tells us this. People like Hans Christian Andersen struggled significantly with it. So did William Faulkner. Ernest Hemingway was institutionalized because of it, as was F. Scott Fitzgerald. It, 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 almost every composer has struggled with depression from Handel to Schumann to Stephen Foster, Irving Berlin to Cole Porter. Poets like Emily Dickerson and T.S. Eliot and Edgar Allan Poe were tormented by it much of their lives. It's why they went into poetry. The famous artist Michelangelo suffered from it, as well as famous statesmen like Abraham Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt. And even some famous theologians and Christian leaders were very honest or have been honest about their struggle with depression. People like Charles Spurgeon, G. Campbell Morgan, Hudson Taylor, and Martin Luther, the great reformer, just to name a few. In fact, Luther said this at one point in his life. These are his own words. He said, for more than a week, I was close to the gates of death and hell. I trembled in all my members. Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by desperation and blasphemy of God. Luther always had a very straightforward way of saying things. One of his biographers, a man by the name of Roland Baton, writes at one, on one occasion, and I quote, Luther could consider suicide. He feared picking up a knife for what he might do to himself. And what you need to know is that the struggle continued for Martin Luther until his death in 1546. Uh, truly, folks, uh, depression has touched the rich and the poor, the educated and the non-educated, the elite and the masses, the religious and the irreligious. It's been a battle within for millions upon millions of people. And it's not just history that has seen a battle with depression, but obviously it's alive and well today. And it certainly touches people here in the Valley of the Sun as we're coming out of this pandemic, one of the things that we have noticed as we're looking through the valley here is that there's quite a few people who are struggling with depression as they come out of isolation and its, its effects, out of health battles and their effects, and the loss of loved ones and its effects. And yet here's the real kicker. Despite the rise of modern medicine and our ever-increasing knowledge and technology, depression still rages on today, and some point out even more so than history. That our modern world has more evidence of depression than almost any other time in history. The National Institute of Mental Health cites that in any given year, more than 17 million Americans suffer a major depressive experience, and this number is held strong for decades. Experts estimate that only about one-third of people who struggle with depression on a serious level ever get help. Most just endure it quietly. And as a result of this, the experts estimate that 25% of women and 15% of men will at some time in their life suffer from a major depressive episode. And most sadly, out of that number, as we all know, tens of thousands of people will take their own lives as a result. So it goes without saying that depression is real. It's not some isolated event only reserved for a select chosen few. No, it's a battle that touches many of us. 
And thankfully, depression is also something that the Bible is not silent about, nor does it ignore this battle within. Because the logic is impeccable, realizing that his children struggle with this dark mood, God has seen fit in the Bible to address this on numerous occasions and even give us some workable tools on how to deal with it in our own lives. And so here's what I wanna do in our time remaining. We got about 30 minutes left. And what I wanna do today is take a, sing, a, take a look at a single rather powerful story in the Bible, one that contains some practical help in dealing head on with depression. And it's a story of a guy who lived a very long time ago, about 3,000 years ago. You might've heard of him. His name is Elijah. And so let me share with you a little bit of background about this guy so that we can all be clued in. He first appears in the Bible in the book of Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17. And he comes on the scene with a bang, I mean very powerfully, as a prophet whose call was to speak into the people of the nation Israel who were backsliding at that time and turning their back on God, as well as the leaders who were really bad leaders, a king by the name of Ahab and then his wife Jezebel. And during Elijah's life and ministry, many powerful and miraculous things happened to him, as well as to those around him. So for instance, he spends two years in the desert being fed only by ravens. Can you imagine? And that's a miraculous thing right there. And then he raises a widow's son to life after the kid had died, a true and real resurrection. Then he calls down the power of God in front of hundreds of non-believers on Mount Carmel. We'll talk about that in a minute here. And after this, he gets miraculously ministered to by God and his angels in the desert again, and eventually becomes one of the only guys in the Old Testament to not die, but is taken up directly into heaven at the end of his life. <laughs> Here's my point. Some of you brag to me on a regular basis about your spiritual experiences, and I'm not here to denigrate any of them, but none of you even come close to Elijah, amen? He's got you beat on the spiritual experience department when it comes to life. This guy was a very, very holy, a very godly man. Now, why is that important? Because when you then turn the page into the New Testament, there's a point where it actually makes a commentary on this guy, Elijah, and it's very interesting what the New Testament says about him. You ready for this? It says that Elijah, and I quote, was a man just like us. Now again, I don't know about you, but I go, that's what it says about Elijah? Like this guy was like, you know, super Christian. I mean, he was extremely godly. He had experiences most of us never will. And the New Testament says he's a man just like us. The answer is yes. He's a guy who put on his pants one, or his tunic one arm at a time. He, 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 was, a, he was a guy who, who, who had the same struggles that you and I do as we're gonna see today. But the New Testament does say there was one difference. And I love how it says it. It says, but he prayed. In other words, he was a man like us, but he prayed, which is simply telling us that he drew close to God. He sought God in the midst of his pain, sought God in the midst of his difficulty. And that's what we're gonna see today. And though there's only a few chapters written about Elijah in the Bible, there is one very honest and forthright chapter that chronicles this guy's battle with what we're looking at today, quite frankly, depression. 
And though we're going to get to the backstory in just a minute, let's just jump into the deep end right now and notice how the Bible chronicles Elijah's battle with depression. Look at what it says in verse 4 of 1 Kings chapter 19. It says, But he himself, Elijah, went on a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I'm not better than my fathers. <laughs> now, I'm here to tell you today, because I study the Bible fairly richly, that every commentator and Bible expert that I've sought, and I've been studying Elijah for 20 years now, every one of them agree that what's happening here is that, is that Elijah was big time down, to use our modern vernacular, he was depressed. We know this because he was discouraged, he was tired, he had a rather low view of himself, and he wanted to die. <laughs> All classic signs of depression. <laughs> I love it in our highly scientific environment today, the American Medical Association defines depression this way. It says, and I quote, it's an extreme persistent disruption of a person's usual emotional state in which sad, lonely, irritable, or weary feelings prevent one from getting on with life. You know, when I read that, I thought, though clinical, that's Elijah right now. He's saying, I don't want to get on with life anymore, God. I'm so depressed in my spirit. Would you just take me now? Some of you can relate to that. And whether you like the term depression or not, listen to me, gang. Don't let that get in the way of you seeing what Elijah is struggling with here. Because down through the ages, Bible commentators and theologians have consistently seen Elijah as struggling with what we call the dark mood here. The Puritans called it melancholy. Charles Spurgeon labeled Elijah here as, I quote, dreadfully downcast. So call it what you will. People have had all different names for it down through the years, but let's just cut right through it. Today we would call it depression. And, and just so that we're clear, his depression is basically, again, what we would call today circumstantial depression. In other words, he was having trouble adjusting to his circumstances changing, some of you can relate, and it was bringing him down. And the reason we know that is because of the backstory that leads up to this verse here in, 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 King, in 1 Kings 19. And look at how Elijah would tell us his backstory in verse 10. When the angel says, or when God says to him eventually, why are you so downcast, Elijah? Here's his answer. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they're seeking my life as well, to take it away. So again, if you know the Old Testament, if you went to Sunday school, you kind of know what's happening here. Uh, Elijah had been through the ringer when it came to helping Israel get back on track uh, with God. 
His life mission was to help Israel get right with God and to help these awful king, this awful king and his wife to get right with God. And so he spent two years in the desert preparing for this, again, hiding and being fed by ravens. And then if you read 1 Kings 18, and I'm not gonna spoil it for you, I really would like you to read it this afternoon on your own if you never have. So it's 1 Kings 18 right before 19 here. It tells the story of what happened to Elijah the day before this depression hit him. Because the day before was a banner day if there ever was one. God had called him to sort of show the prophets of Baal, which was the competing religion at that time, that they really were worshiping nothing, that their God was not real. And so Elijah challenged them to a contest on that day. Some of you know the story. And there's 450 prophets of Baal versus Elijah. And the ground rules were simple. A miracle needed to happen. So they set up this altar of wood, one over here and one over here. And without any lighter, without any matches or nothing like that, the prophets of Baal needed to seek their God and get that thing lit, which would be miraculous. And then Elijah had to do the same. And so the prophets of Baal spent an entire day beseeching their gods. And of course, nothing happened because their gods are not real. And then it came Elijah's turn. And by the way, you got, you got to read the chapter because he's taunting them the whole time. And, and then it came time for Elijah. And Elijah actually taunted them more. He poured water on the wood. Said, let's make this harder. I can defeat you with half my spirituality tied behind my back. And so he, he, he kind of poured water on it. And then he prayed to God. And God, as you know, just lit that thing up. And it was vindication that God is real and that all that Elijah had said was also real. But something backfired. And that was that the queen Jezebel didn't buy it and she was so mad that Elijah had shown them up that she said, I'm gonna kill you. So he did what all of us would do. He ran out into the desert. And I read you verse four earlier. When he gets out into the desert, he says, I've had enough. I don't know if Israel's really getting it, God. I feel like a failure. I, I know yesterday was a banner day, but today just seems like it's all for naught. Let me ask you guys a question. Have you ever gone from a real high to a real low? Do you know what he's feeling? Some of you have. I have. I've had banner days where I'm preaching to you, and then Monday seems a real downer. And that's where Elijah is. And just simply see that it's circumstantial in nature. It's because of the circumstances in his life. He felt like his life had no worth or purpose, that all was hopeless. And he was depressed. And it's worth noting, before we go any further right now, this is really important that you guys dial into this. Because I'm going to give you, I'm going to show you here what the Bible says or what God says to Elijah to help him with his depression. The, 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 Elijah's depression is one type of depression that we know of. That's why I keep calling it circumstantial depression or, or an adjustment issue. God's going to give Elijah a recipe here in a minute that I think is going to speak to a lot of us that struggle with depression. But you got to be careful here because this is only one part of the Bible, one kind of depression. We know that there's other forms as well. Depression is very varied in its expression. In other words, when, it can, when you consider the sources of depression, it can come from loss and or change. It can come from our sin. It can come because of seasonal changes. It can come because of your personality type, hereditary brain chemistry, which is why we treat it with medication on certain instances. And so the sources of depression are very varied. There's no one size fits all. 
And then the intensity of depression can be very different for different people. Some people just have a general mood problem with it. Others have an adjustment problem like, like Elijah is. Others have a low-grade chronic depression that they deal with all of their lives. And then as it gets more intense, some people go into a clinical or major depression, bipolar or manic depression. You get the idea. We have to be very careful that the recipe for depression, even here in the Bible in this one spot, we don't interpret as the recipe for all kinds and for everybody. Give me a head nod that you understand this. Because again, invariably one of you is going to email me and have a problem with what we're going to talk about today. But you need to understand, this is the type of thing where if it helps you, if it fits, and it's helped me a lot, then great. If not, then trust me, there's other things the Bible says and there's other help that we can help you with as we're a church that deals with these things head on. Now, I'm going to share with you four things in just a minute that God shares with Elijah that were immensely helpful for him in his depression. But before we do that, I want to give you one overriding thing that God does with Elijah that might be the only and most important thing that you need to hear today in your struggle with depression. And it's simply this, that God says to Elijah, I am with you in the battle. I have never left you. I am here and I care. If you don't believe me, I want you to look at verse 5 of 1 Kings 19. Verse 4 I showed you earlier where Elijah finally says, I've had enough, just take me, God, I want to die. And then look what happens in the very next verse, in verse 5, and you're going to see what I mean. It says, Elijah lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to Elijah, arise, eat. I want you to dial into this right here, right now, where it says an angel was touching him. I, I parked in front of that in my study this week. Because right there, when, when Elijah needed God the most, God was there in the form of an angel or a messenger. And I don't know if you catch or not, but I love how it says that he was touching him. Why would the author include that? Why is that an important detail? Because Elijah in that moment was experiencing the presence of God with him. And again, I know what some of you think. You're thinking, well, Jamie, I get depressed and I don't feel like God's with me and I don't know that he's with me and all that. Here's what you need to remember is that part of this is claimed by faith. Part of this is claiming a promise that Jesus gave you and me that he will never leave us or forsake us. Amen that he will always be with us. And the whole point of faith is that even when you don't perceive it, you grab onto it and say, I believe it. And so one of the most important things that some of us need to hear today when it comes to our depression is that though we might not always feel it, and even though we're tempted to believe otherwise, God has not moved. He is still with you, he cares about you, he loves you, and he's here to offer help. God was with Elijah, who was a man just like us. And he's with you and me in our battle as well. Now, I'm a lawyer's kid, so I, I tend to push back even on everything I say. And so uh, this week I was thinking, you know, what possible argument could somebody give to this, right? Like, you know, that God is with you and, and he cares for you. What could somebody possibly say to that? And it hit me. 
of what some of you might say. And, and you're thinking rightly. You're saying, okay, Jamie, God is with me. I get that. And even when I can't feel it, I've got to claim it by faith. But what does he do? What does his presence do for me when I'm so low? And that's a great question. Four things I want you to notice that God did with Elijah. Four things that I believe he wants to do with you and me as well. And again, the big caveat here is that, you know, God is meeting Elijah in his particular de depression. And I have found this recipe helpful for me. But again, there's more that the Bible says. This is just one spot. And here's the first thing that we learn from Elijah. And that is that God wants us to get real. God wants us to get real. You know, as I have studied this story over the years, one of the things that amazes me is how quickly and candidly God allowed Elijah to admit his battle within without any shame or judgment. Do you remember verse four? That's really the hinge verse where Elijah's in the desert there and he says to God, you know, he says, it's enough now, God. I, I, I don't want to live anymore. Take my life. I'm not better than my father's. I thought about that a lot this week. I thought, you know, uh, Elijah, it took some guts to say that to God. I mean, am I, am I thinking right or not? I, I mean, he just had a banner day the day before. God's using him in a profound way. And he won the day before. And yeah, Jezebel wants his life, but this woman's not going to change and neither is her husband. We deal with people who won't change all the time. A part of me, if I was Elijah, I would have said, yeah, I'm depressed, but I don't think I want to own this with God. Because God just very much might say to me, what, you want to die? What more do you want me to do? I kept you alive in that desert by feeding you with ravens. I poured power through you to raise this widow's kid to life. And I spoke through you in front of 450 prophets of Baal. And you want to die? Interesting. That's the way I would have thought. I'm hard on my own soul, right? <laughs> and so again, I'm, I'm sitting there going, that's probably where I would have been. I would have wanted to hide or at least try to let God know that, you know, I'm okay, God, I got this. Elijah doesn't do that. What I need you guys to see, especially you men, is that there was no shame in Elijah. He was a man's man. He said, this is what's in my soul, God. I'm gonna lay it out before you. And I think God calls us to do that. He calls us to get real. And I think there's some legitimacy in that. You know, one of the reasons that uh, this topic of depression is so important to me and the reason I included it in this series and I really don't want this to be about me. I really don't, because this is about you and God and, and Elijah. But I got to confess to you guys, I think some of you have probably already seen this in me. This is probably my top battle within, is depression. And it has been all of my life. I, I've studied depression backwards and forwards. I'm not a psychologist, but I've had such an interest in this on a personal level that I've studied it for years. And the reason is, is because ever since I was a little guy, I can remember just feeling so blue a lot, just so sad and depressed. And when I went into the ministry, when I accepted Christ, I thought it would all change, and it didn't. There's just some days where I'm just really depressed and I struggle with it. I've been to therapy, I've been to counseling, I married an amazing woman, I got three semi-good kids. I mean, I'm super blessed. <laughs> and uh, I got a sense of humor uh, and, and all that stuff, and, and yet there's still too many days that I struggle with it. It was fascinating for those of you who wonder, you know, where this stuff comes from. I mean, I, I, had a, I had a sandpaper relationship with my dad, but I still had a great childhood, great upbringing. 
Fascinating, my grandfather, who was a minister, struggled with depression, and it hit him in his early 20s. My mom struggled with depression, hit her in her early 20s, and now I struggle with depression, and I see it in my kids. I, I firmly believe that there's a hereditary component to it. It doesn't excuse it, it just, it is. We're born with some strikes against us. But for the longest time, it was hard for me to admit it. I, I thought I was crazy. Maybe some of you have felt that way. And, and I felt a lot of shame over it. I thought I shouldn't feel this way. Everybody else seems so normal. And I can remember being a young pastor and again, battling the blues on a regular basis. I really do have more of a melancholy spirit. I'm an extrovert, but I, 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 I'm more melancholy in my spirit. And I remember just struggling with this. And one day I decided to take a risk. I'll never forget it. It was back in the early 90s. I was in my first pastorate. I was an associate pastor and I was driving down the road with a, a, a very, very successful man in Detroit. He was an architect, would go on to become one of the top architects in the Midwest. He had a beautiful wife, beautiful kids, nice cars, didn't seem to struggle with much. And like most people, I thought this guy's got his act together. But he was a good friend. And I decided to take a risk. So he said, hey, what's wrong with you today? And I decided to tell him. And I said, you know, it's not about today. I said, I feel this way often. I said, I just struggle in my spirit. I just feel down. And, and, and I read scripture and I pray a lot and, and I listen to praise music and all that. And I, and I just still struggle with it. And, 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 I, and I don't know what it's about. And I felt this way ever since I was a little boy. I, I couldn't believe what happened next. <laughs> he actually pulled the car over to the road and put it in park. <laughs> I thought he was gonna kick me out. And, uh, and, and, and he looked at me. He actually had a tear in his eye. He said, I could tell you the exact same story. He goes, I feel that way all the time as well. And I battled that since I was a little guy as well. And I can't believe, and he said this, that a guy who was so put together as you <laughs> would admit that. And I thought, no, 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 you're the one put together. I'm not put together. I mean, I am, but, that, but you are too. <laughs> and, and it was a moment in time, he and I have been just close friends ever since, where we realized we weren't alone and that there's other people struggling. True story, I said to him, well, what do you do about it? He handed me his therapist card. <laughs> and it was a Christian therapist who actually became the first counselor I would see. This is what we'll talk about in a minute. Help me put some of the pieces back together. One of the first things you and I need to hear is that it's okay to get real. It's okay to be honest. Elijah was, and he did so against all the odds, and God received him. And there's some people around you, and I know God is this way, that will receive you as well. Now, notice after we get real that there is a second thing that God says or does to Elijah. And I'm just going to warn you right now, this is going to strike some of you as odd. In fact, you're going to want to accuse me of being like a self-help guru or something like that. But I, I almost didn't include this point, but it's just so obvious there in the scriptures. And every Bible expert points this out that I thought we got to include it to be true to God's word. And this is the second thing God does with Elijah. Elijah. He tells him to take care of his body. Take care of his body. So right on the heels of Elijah owning his dark mood with God, look at what happens next in verses six through eight, because you can't make this stuff up. After Elijah owns this, it says, he, Elijah, lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him and said, arise, eat. 
Then he looked and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and laid down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, some Bible commenters, all of them point out that certainly, in part, God was telling Elijah to eat and rest because of the long journey ahead. But what they also point out is that we would be foolish not to make a link here in the text between his depression and the fact that God wanted him to take care of his body through eating and through sleeping. Every commentator points that out. And the logic has been confirmed by what we know about depression today. And that is that depression is a whole body experience. It's not just wrong thinking. It's not just your emotions that are messed up, that your body is involved as well. It's also organic in the way that it expresses itself and that we need to take care of ourselves if we're going to deal with depression head on. And again, what fascinates me is how even the old time preachers who knew nothing of modern day psychology have picked up on this. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, we have almost all of his sermons that you know, he wrote out almost 150 years ago. And uh, he was preaching at one point on this exact text. And listen to what he says, because I love this. He, they called him the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. He, he says, it is always a pity when you're taking stock of yourself not to consider the condition of your body, the state of your stomach and your liver, and a great many other things. Though they may seem small, yet there may be more in them that is apparent to the sight. He says, I have known a man to feel so bad that he thought he could not be a child of God when really the main trouble was that he needed his dinner. For his spirits revived as soon as he has partaken of proper nourishment. He says, it often happens that some little thing like this taking care of your body, which really at another time we should altogether despise may be the cause of the intense depression of spirit. <laughs> so there it is. I, I think there's relevance to what God does with Elijah here and for you and me today, though it so, so, sounds so simple, you have to ask yourself, am I getting enough sleep? Am I eating right and eating well? Because it could start to at least help some of the feelings that you have. So get real and honest about your battle. Take care of your body. And now things really heat up with the third thing that God calls us to do when engaging the battle within that he says to Elijah, and that is to begin to process what has happened. Begin to process what has happened. This is really good. So look with me at what God himself does next with Elijah in the story before us. Look at what happens next as Elijah follows God 40 days to the mountain, to Horeb. And look what happens on the mountain. It says, then he, Elijah, came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said to them, what are you doing here, Elijah? Pause right there. I, I, I'd probably say to God, well, you told me to come here, God. <laughs> but Elijah doesn't say that. Elijah, decided, again, he's so honest here, decides to take more of a direct route. Look what happens next. Uh, Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. 
For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And then what's really fascinating is that this exact same pattern, you can read about it for yourself later, occurs again. In other words, right after God asks this question and Elijah gives the answer, God asks the same question again, what are you doing here? And Elijah gives the same answer. So the question I have for you is why the question twice repeated and why the same answer twice recorded? Why would the author do that? And here it is, because he wants to underline that when we are depressed, God is concerned for us processing it and talking about it and trying to understand what's happened and where we've been. That's why I mentioned to you earlier that Elijah's depression was circumstantial in nature and that Elijah needed to get it out. He needed to talk to God and unravel why he was so upset and why he was so depressed in spirit. He needed to talk about it. And what you need to see more than anything else, and this is my own thing, I haven't noticed any Bible expert or commentator point this out, but I think it has teeth, and that is that Elijah verbalized it to God. He didn't just get in a quiet time and say, I think I'll think nice thoughts. No, he verbalized it. He spoke to God and started to process and talk out loud the things that had happened to him. Uh, John Bradshaw, a forerunner of the recovery movement, once said that shame cannot stand to be spoken, that when you speak your shame, it, it starts to dissipate. And he's right. Try it sometime. Some of you are so bottled up in your shame and your depression and you dare, you think I dare not ever talk to anybody about it. Start by talking to God <laughs> and literally talking to him about it verbally and then start to share it with others. You're gonna find, like I did that one day back in the 90s, it starts to, to, to feel good to get it out. And so we need to begin to process these things. As I have processed my own struggle with depression over the years, and it's taken a lot of verbalizing and talking, I gotta tell you, it's been incredibly helpful for me. I've seen multiple counselors. I've been in a men's group now for 30 years in which I talk about my, my struggle a lot. I, I struggle with a chronic low-grade depression. And I've learned that my struggle with depression is probably rooted in my temperament. It's probably rooted in family history, my relationship with the Lord. And, and this one, you're going to like it. It's definitely rooted in the fact that when I went into ministry, because I have a tender heart to God and people, I, I went into a massive people-pleasing mode very early on in the ministry because I thought that was, that's what God wanted me to do. And it backfired on me because you can't please everybody in the ministry. And I got very frustrated very quickly. And I had a therapist once share this with me. This was worth the cost of the boatload of money I was paying this guy. And, and, and that was this. He once said, Jamie, you need to understand that, that many forms of depression are simply anger turned inward. Ooh, that, that was like, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't need to see you anymore. Like that's what I needed to hear that I was so angry, and quite frankly, I was angry at you. I was angry at church people, and, and I couldn't please them, and it wasn't your fault, but I, I just, I was, I was so frustrated in my spirit, but I wasn't talking about it, I wasn't processing it, and I was pushing it down. And, and that was, again, part, part of the reason I felt so depressed. And over the years, because I just don't feel this way anymore, not depressed, I just don't feel as angry, because I don't feel like I need to please you, and it drives some of you crazy, but it's where I'm at. And, and so I, I, I tell you, I'm a lot more healthier you're the ones that are sick. I'm a lot more healthier. <laughs> I'm just kidding. And, uh, and, 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 and so my point is that there's real hope. 
as you start to process these things. And again, we'll talk in the last week what victory looks like. I mean, I'm not suggesting I've arrived. <laughs> I still struggle. But I've made great strides. You can ask those who know me. But it's come through starting to process it. Again, sometimes professionally and sometimes just with my buddies around me, but processing it nonetheless. So we need to get real. You need to take care of yourself. You gotta be in processing. And then finally, because we're definitely out of time, but we have to definitely, give me just a few more minutes. We need to look at this last point because God says to Elijah, you need to pursue relationship with myself and with others. Here's the impeccable logic behind this one. And that is, I think some of you know this, but you need to if you don't, you can't deal with this one on your own. Man, if you struggle with depression, I see you nodding your head, yes. You can't deal with this one on your own. I've tried and I'm pretty tough and I'm pretty smart. But for some of us who are dealing with this on a, on a deep level in our souls, man, you need outside help. And that's why it's important that we draw close to God. That's why Elijah was a man just like us, but he prayed. And that's why we need others in our lives as well. Uh, to show you this, I wanna close by just reading you the rest of the story. I mean, I could do multiple, multiple sermons on just this text here in chapter 19, but I wanna close by, by reading you what Elijah does next after he gets real with God, after he starts to take care of his body, as he begins processing it with God. Because what happens next is very revealing. And as I read it for you, just listen. I don't want it on the screen. I just want you to listen to how this story wraps up because it's very, very profound. And he said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, when Elijah went and stood on the mount, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind tore by the mountains and broke the pieces of the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a low whisper. Some translations say a gentle breeze. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood to the, at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice in the breeze and it said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go. Return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And I want you to anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, over king, king over Israel. And I want you to anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. I want you to just take away two things from the wrap up of this story, two very profound things that I think God's word says to you. First, notice, and I said this earlier, that as God is with you, he does want to speak to your spirit and he will speak to your spirit. 
But this will encourage you. Many times we think God speaks to us in the storm, in the storm of our vibrant worship, in the storm of your chaotic life. But many times God says, I want you to slow down. I want you to get with me because I'm going to speak in those quiet moments. That's why we call it a quiet time, in the gentleness of your soul. I'm not in the wind. I'm not in the earthquake. I'm not in the fire. I'm in the gentle breeze. And it's when you and I get quiet and alone and open before the Lord, that's his best chance to speak to our spirit. And I've looked at it this way for years. Maybe this will help those of you who share uh, my, my journey of depression is that that's actually a gift for those of us who are depressed because it's natural for us to get alone and quiet. So maybe now you can see that what you think is a terrible, terrible thing, and in many ways it is, God says, I'm going to use that to even speak to you in the gentleness of my Holy Spirit. That's the first thing I want you to hear. Then the second thing is notice, is that what, notice what God did speak to Elijah. And, and you got to love this. Through all the words that he uses, through all the history and all those names you can't pronounce, God essentially says, I got this. I got this, Elijah. I'm going to deal with your depression by doing a few things. I'm going to get rid of these nasty leaders and I'm going to put some other ones in their place. And I got 7,000 people that have heard your words and they're ready to go. And by the way, I'm taking you out. You've done your work. You've done a great job. I got a guy coming behind you named Elisha. And though Elijah doesn't know it yet, Elisha's going to get, have you read it? A double portion of the blessing that Elijah had. So God's going to use Elisha in powerful ways. He essentially says to Elijah, I got this. I told you I was in control, and I am. I got your life. And here's what I believe, gang. He's got you as well. He's got your life. He loves you. He loves me. So get quiet before him. Allow him to speak to your spirit. Allow him to give you some hope. It's okay to get real. Take care of yourself. Begin to process and draw close. Because he's got this. Because he's got you. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for this amazing story that has so ministered to me and moved me over the years. The reality that you are in control, even in the midst of the darkest times in our lives. And God, I am not unaware today. I'm very aware that there are some here that are in the throes of being in a very dark place. Maybe it's coming off the pandemic. Maybe like me, they've dealt with these things for a long time. Maybe they're experiencing some tragic circumstance in their life. Lord, and they're in a dark place. And God, I don't pretend that the things we've looked at today are the be-all and end-all, but Lord, I pray you would use them to, at the very least, give a word of hope to one who may became hopeless today. Let them know you're with them and that you care and that your presence means something if we will embrace you by faith and that your presence means that we can be honest, we can process, we can hope as we trust in you. And Lord, speak to that hurting one's spirit today and let them know that they're not alone. I pray, God, that for the rest of us that you make us very compassionate people with those around us that might be struggling and may we do nothing but love them and point them toward you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. We all say together, amen.